0: Hello and welcome to The Gold Podcast. I'm Mark Koskila, and today I'm delighted to be hosting this bonus episode specially dedicated to Men's Health Week, an important topic for all, particularly those within the pharma and healthcare space. We're celebrating and acknowledging this vital awareness week by bringing you two fantastic guests with differing but extensive experience in the men's health landscape. One of those guests is Peter Baker, Director at Global Action on Men's Health, which is a UK-based international charity seeking to create a world in which all men can achieve the best possible health and well-being wherever they live, whatever their background. I caught up with Peter to discuss his journeys becoming a men's health advocate, the Global Differentiators for Inequality in Men's Health, and much more. It's a great interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Today I'm joined by Peter Baker, Director of Global Action on Men's Health. Hello Peter, how
1: are you? Hello Mark. Yes, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yes, very, very well. I'm really
0: excited about this conversation that we're going to be having over the next 20 or so minutes. So to kick us off, can you talk us through your journey to becoming a men's health advocate and leader?
1: Well, I've been doing this for quite a long time now. Um, I'm quite shocked to say that I was, I've been in the men's health field Uh, for some 25 years now Um, and i've been involved in wider men's health issues for for longer than that um and it really started in the 1980s i think when i started to think about what it meant to be a man um what masculinity was all about and i began to reflect on personal stuff and think about the role of men in society in relation to health certainly but also being a parent, uh, I started to think about men's uh, role in violence, those kind of issues. But over time, I started to focus more on uh, men's health and got really interested in that. And I think that largely stemmed from uh, having some cr- not serious, not life-threatening, but some chronic health problems myself, including you know back pain that lasted several years, and uh, also suffering from a duodenal ulcer for for many years and it made me think you know about my own health and how I cared for myself or didn't care for myself and uh you know part of my recovery from both those conditions meant that I had to change my my lifestyle and think about my health and my body in a different way um so that's how I kind of got more interested in health and I was working as a writer and a journalist um and I started to focus more about well I started writing about men's issues generally and then more about men's health issues. Um, And I wrote a couple of books, uh, self-help books for men, uh, but also became health editor of a middle shelf uh, men's magazine called Maxim. And I did that for, um, I wrote the health and fitness stuff for about four years in the 1990s. And that brought me into contact with people in the men's health field more generally Um, including an organisation, a charity called the Men's Health Forum, uh, which is a UK-based organisation that tries to raise men's health issues. And I joined the board of that organisation and then, in quite a complicated way, uh, I became the director and then I became the chief executive and I did that for, for 12 years. And that's when I got involved in men's health in a much more serious way I was running a men's health organization and getting more involved in in policy, trying to influence the government's uh, health agenda, that kind of thing. And that's really when I got my teeth into the issue, and um, that's pretty much what I've been doing ever since.
0: Absolutely fascinating, and you've certainly got a, a lot of experience in the area, as you've just mentioned there. What would you say are the most pressing issues within men's health today? Then, as you kind of compare that over the over the past twenty, thirty years.
1: Well, that's, that's a really interesting question and a very a very difficult one to answer because I could pick out a whole range of kind of individual health conditions where men do particularly badly. Um, obviously, heart disease you know, kills more men than women. Men get it at a younger age. Cancer, more men get cancer, more men die from cancer uh, than women. Suicide in the UK, three times as many men as women kill themselves. Globally, it's twice as many men as women. Uh, Overall life expectancy is shorter for men than it is for women. In the UK, it's about four years now. Uh, Globally, it's just over five years. Um, So there's a whole host of of problems you can identify. But I think I I prefer to answer the question in a a more cross-cutting way, because I think the the big issues that we're facing in men's health are partly around Uh, men's risk-taking behaviors are the things that as men we don't do very well generally uh, around our health Uh, so for example we're more likely to smoke we're more likely to drink alcohol and to drink alcohol heavily Uh, we're less likely to use uh, sun protection for example so there's a whole range of things that we don't do very well and also we don't use services as effectively as we could Uh, so uh, it's a classic thing really when that men you know we say that men don't go to the doctor and it's a bit of a stereotype but there's some real truth in that we 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 underuse uh, health services we tend to delay seeking help we go later rather than sooner uh, but it's not just as simple as that that sounds like I'm blaming men for the not looking after their health and that's really a superficial explanation i think um, I think what's more important to understand is the way that men are brought up, uh, the kind of gender norms that we hold inside our heads as men, um, so the, the idea that we have to conform to a certain uh, way of being as men that makes us uh, neglect our health, uh, discourages us from asking for help, it attaches a stigma uh, to help-seeking and to looking after ourselves, to self-care. So we're all brought up with that, whether we like it or not, then it's actually quite hard to break away from that. I mean, obviously, many of us do. And we we all kind of look after our health or don't look after our health in different ways. But broadly, I think those gender norms are true for most of us. But the other the other side of that, of course, is that services, health services, haven't adapted very well to men. They haven't reached out to men. They haven't made themselves male-friendly. Um, they haven't made it easy for men to use those those services. They haven't taken account of how men are and thought about, well, if men have these beliefs and these attitudes about health, what can we do about that? How can we encourage and support men to think about their health differently? How can we make services easier for men to access um, so it fits in with their lives? Um, and that's the other thing, of course, that's very important. A lot of services... In practical terms, quite hard for men to use. So, men who are working full time, maybe travelling some distances to and from work, find it hard to access a service that's only open from nine to five. So, if you combine the kind of reluctance um, to seek help with the practical barriers, uh, it's quite a uh, it's quite a barrier uh, for a, for a lot of men. So, I think we have to think about you know, you ask you what the most pressing issues are in men's health. I think they're about these cross-cutting things about the way that men are brought up, the norms that we carry, the gender norms that we have inside our heads, uh, the way services are designed and delivered, and the fact that health policy um, is not really developed thinking about men. There's only seven countries in the world that have dedicated men's health policies at a national level. And we haven't really got to grips with thinking about men and, and really worked out how we can take better care of men in our in our societies.
0: Do you think you've obviously talked there about I guess in in earlier ages potentially not being kind of educated um, or or men not being educated in in necessarily the right way here do do you think that's something that could be improved whether that's in the UK or beyond in terms of school education?
1: I think that's that's definitely the case I think there's a big gap at the moment in the way that we uh, bring up boys uh, to think about health and that's a responsibility really of parents um, as, as well as schools. Um, and I think we could do a lot better in that respect. I certainly think that no boy should leave school without knowing how to make an appointment with their GP, for example. How to use a pharmacy would be another example, a very practical example, something that we could, we could do for boys which would enable them to look after their health better, to self care better when they leave school and have to take responsibility much more for their own health.
0: Um, and, and have you noticed age more widely playing a role in men's engagement with health or, or kind of generational differences? Do you find certain age brackets responding slightly better?
1: Well, it's it's actually quite hard to, to measure this. I mean, anecdotally, um, I think a lot of people now believe that younger men are doing better than people of you know older generations. Um, certainly in terms of mental health, I think there's a sense that younger men are more willing to uh, talk about their psychological distress um, and perhaps even to, to seek help. Um, so I think there may be signs of a change, although the research um, doesn't really bear that out particularly clearly, but I think the impression is that, that things are slowly beginning to change. But I think that what often happens with men generally is there there are two things which really push men to think about their health in a different way. One is becoming a father. And I think that becoming a father encourages a lot of men to reflect on what they're doing with their health um, and to think about, you know, I want to be there for my children. I've got now new responsibilities. I've got responsibility for somebody else in a way that wasn't the case before. And it makes sense for me now to think about my own health and how I can care better for myself so I can be there for my children. And the other thing that I think changes a lot of men is when they actually do develop a serious health problem. It actually happened to me. I talked about my own health issues earlier and how that prompted a change in in, um, my uh, health behavior and and where I thought about my own health. But I think it's true generally. And often we see that when men have a, for example, a diagnosis of diabetes or heart disease or whatever it is, that that encourages them to at that point make a change i think what we need to do is to think about how we can support men to be healthier earlier uh, so they don't develop those diseases in the first place uh, but certainly we, we tend to we tend to we often see that when men do get to that point then they start reflecting on their health and 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 um uh, are making some changes and of course that that's often in middle age and older age
0: now Taking a, a kind of a more, a more global look at men's health and how different geographies and cultures either encourage good health or inadvertently perpetuate ill health, what do you see as the key differences between richer and more well-resourced countries as opposed to their lower-income counterparts, which perhaps don't always benefit from as much resource?
1: Well, I think my, my first response to that is probably the, the obvious response, is we, we know that in the lower-income countries... Uh, men, and of course, women, uh, do far worse in terms of their health outcomes. And I've been looking at uh, some of the statistics from uh, the, the World Health Organization, the more, most recent statistics. And the uh, in Africa, for example, in the African region, uh, male life expectancy is still uh, just 62 years, compared to 75 years in Europe. Um, so, you know, we can see that life expectancy is far poorer uh, for men in the lower income countries rather than the higher income countries. And that's, you know, that's what most of us, um, I suppose, would expect to see. And of course, you know, men in the, in the lower income countries are more likely to suffer from communicable diseases, uh, whereas in the higher income countries, the, the main killers are the non-communicable uh, diseases. So there are differences. And of course, there are differences in access to uh, health services as well. But I think what's also striking when you look at men's health globally is that the, issue, the broad issues that I've been talking about, uh, actually, you find those in in most parts of the world. Of course, there are differences. There are important cultural differences, uh, economic differences, and so on. But the same broad picture emerges where you have you know men with similar gender norms that encourage them to uh, deprioritize their health, not to take it not as seriously as they might, that men are often reluctant users of services and that services haven't been set up to encourage men to to use them. Um, So we see, for example, in many lower income countries where there has been investment or some investment in sexual and reproductive health services, that they're almost entirely targeted um, at at women. And that's of course, it's very important that women do have good access to these services but men need access to them too, and to other types of health services as well. So I think we we see the same broad picture, the same broad issues replicated um, in most parts of the world.
0: I guess I see we talked about education, but I guess awareness is also hugely important. So the theme of this year's Men's Health Week is Man M O T. Have there been any other schemes or initiatives over the years that you've seen as being particularly successful or, or unsuccessful in really generating, driving awareness, conversations, and all those those really good things?
1: Oh, definitely. I think one of the things that holds uh, policymakers and service providers back from engaging better with men's health is a belief that you can't really change men, that it's a, it's a bit of a it's you might be you wasting your time and wasting your money if you if you do things for men because they won't they won't turn up they won't come to the services or they they won't change boys will be boys you know they'll always take risks and there's not much you can do about that but we know over the last 20 years there've been great many programs which have not enough i should say but there've been enough enough interventions with men which have been successful for us to know that you can actually make a positive difference to men's health you can improve their health outcomes but that's across a range of issues heart disease cancer uh, physical activity smoking alcohol mental health you name it we we now know enough and this has been properly evaluated and these 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 um uh projects have, have often been written up in peer-reviewed uh academic journals so the evidence the solid evidence is there and i'll give you uh, a couple of examples. There's a programme in Scotland called Football Fans in Training. And this is a, a programme which is delivered for men in Scottish Premier League football clubs. And basically, it uses football as the, the medium of engagement because uh, the hypothesis was that men will, int- a lot of men, not all men, but a lot of men are interested in football. Uh, they're more likely to feel comfortable in a football environment. They're more likely to be interested in uh, programs around fitness and physical activity and diet if they're delivered in a a sports setting where the emphasis is on fitness rather than just losing weight. Um, And so the the program, it's a simple concept, really. It it basically takes men through a program. I think it's a 12-week program and uh, uses the connection of football to, to engage the men. And it works and we know that over a period of time these men improve their physical activity levels they lose weight they uh, their cardiovascular risk goes down um, and they feel better their mental health and well-being is improved as well um, and football fans in training was so successful in Scotland that it it actually then got funded the project then got funding from the uh, European Union and is now delivered across several European states with European uh, top flight Football clubs. So it's an excellent example of how you can intervene with men in, in a way that takes account of men, you know, gets inside men's heads in a way um, and delivers something in a way that they find interesting, and comfortable, accessible, and, and, and so on. Another example would be uh, Man MOT, uh, which is a program delivered in England uh, by the Men's Health Forum, the charity I, I used to work for. Um, and this was a very simple idea as well, but it was using digital technology uh, to deliver uh, health advice. So the idea was that instead of expecting men to go to the GP and make an appointment with the GP in the normal way, uh, the service will will be provided uh, online through a web chat uh, facility, which will be marketed uh, specifically at men. And the take-up was massive. I mean, it far exceeded Men's Health Form's ability to actually deliver the the service so it had to be scaled down at times access had to be restricted because the demand was so great and and what was also very interesting about it was that the majority of people who wanted to access and use the service were younger men uh, the very men who are most are are least likely to go to the GP and a lot of their questions were a lot of their uh, anxieties were about sexual uh, health problems that they will be particularly embarrassed about talking to a GP face to face. And so they used the digital service. um, And again, we could see that it worked very effectively. The numbers using the service and the level of satisfaction um, was very high. I'll give one more example, if I may. Uh, It was a project called uh, WorkFit that was delivered with one of the biggest uh, telecoms companies um, in the UK. This is going back a few years now. But again it used digital technology to deliver health advice and information to men so it could be accessed easily confidentially and so on but it also organized men into teams who competed competed against each other uh, to lose weight over a period of time and combining the digital technology the, the access to information through technology with the competitive element again appealed to a large number of men and very large numbers of men participated in the program um, and the outcomes are very positive. Uh, the average weight loss was very significant for a program delivered in that way without face-to-face contact. So I think th- these examples and, and many others show that you can actually deliver effective health programs for men, improve men's awareness um, and, and, and uh, deliver better outcomes.
0: Really interesting that, that kind of whether it's the use of gamification or... Well, really, the use of kind of community, whether that's a football led community or, or whatever it might be, to help deliver those much more positive outcomes. Um, d- did you have a favorite out of those, those three? Uh,
1: it's a good question. Um, I think the football fans, football fans in training, probably would be my favorite, uh, partly because it's been so successful. Um, and it's it's been scaled up uh, quite successfully and also it was it was written up in the lancet so you know one of our leading medical journals actually published uh, a peer reviewed paper of you know about the project which demonstrated its effectiveness so and we've got really solid evidence that shows that if you go about wor- you know working with men in the right way uh, you can you can make a big difference oh,
0: definitely now, um, just moving on, so and to talk more about yourself, Peter, so, so one of your, your areas of expertise is around advocacy and, and lobbying. What would you say has been your biggest achievement in this space?
1: Well, the, the, the piece of, of advocacy I'm, I'm proudest to have been associated with um, was the campaign in the UK uh, for gender neutral HPV vaccination that's vaccination against the uh, human papillomavirus, until uh, 2019 um, in the UK, only girls were vaccinated against HPV, primarily to protect them against uh, cervical cancer. Of course, that's extremely important. Um, But boys can also uh, be infected with HPV um, and they can also not only transmit it to girls and cause cervical cancer in girls, but there's a range of cancers that, that men can get. And men need to be protected against those cancers as well. And vaccination, uh, HPV vaccination can protect them um, against those cancers. So I got involved with the campaign to uh, introduce uh, HPV vaccination for everybody. This was for all adolescents uh, delivered in schools. And I headed up a five-year campaign, which brought together 51 organizations who thought this was a good idea. And we worked together to try and persuade, ultimately successfully, uh, the government's vaccination advisory body, JCVI, to make the change. And they were very resistant, actually it took a lot of effort to persuade them, uh, the vaccinating boys as well as girls was a good idea. And the campaign wasn't just, you know, sending scientific information to them, of uh, which there was an increasing volume showing that vaccinating boys made sense. But it was also a political element to this. We did a lot of work with MPs from all political parties. Uh, we engaged the national media. We tried to get parents involved to write letters to their MPs. We tried to influence scientific opinion to you know, increase the, the scientific noise about you know the merits of, of vaccinating both boys and girls. And ultimately, we, was, we were successful. The, the campaign paid off, I, I think, against the odds. And I'm now involved uh, with the campaign to uh, get HPV vaccination for boys, as well as girls in, 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 introduced in Europe, throughout the European region. And I played a role, I wouldn't, wouldn't say it was the main role, but I played a role in persuading uh, the European Commission uh, to include a commitment to gender neutral vaccination uh, in its uh, new uh, beating cancer plan. Uh, that was announced a year or so ago. So we now have a commitment throughout the European Union uh, to gender neutral vaccination, and I think this is a really significant step forward in public health, but in but in men's health particularly.
0: Now, it's great to hear how that's being pushed not just through the UK but into into Europe. Why why is there such a, a reluctance in terms of having that that gender neutral policy? Do you think?
1: I think it boils down to money, uh, quite simply. Um, I, I think that there was a reluctance in the UK to actually spend the extra, we don't know exactly how much it would be, but roughly 20 million pounds a year to vaccinate boys. It wasn't seen as a, as a good use of public money. And cost-effectiveness modeling uh, was constructed to try and prove that it wasn't good value for money. But you know, working with healthy economists, we were able to get the JCVI to look again at the cost-effectiveness and ultimately, uh, they decided that it was cost effective uh, to vaccinate boys. And that's now, you know, I think, much more widely accepted. Uh, if, you look at, if you look at the money you save over a, a long period of time, not just five years or 10 years, I mean, this is long-term stuff, but if you look at it in the long term, it's quite clear that you save enormous, enormous sums of money. But we also argued this wasn't just about money, this was about you know, ethics and about equity um, and about improving public health and improving the quality uh, of people's lives and, and stopping people dying, of course. So uh, of all points of view, it's the, it's the right thing to do. Great. No, thank you.
0: And last question from me on a slightly different uh, topic. So in your opinion, is there anything that pharmaceutical organisations can do to better support and encourage men to engage with their health, whether that's via healthcare professionals or, or even their own
1: campaigns? Yeah, I think this is really important. I mean, I've worked with pharmaceutical companies and other, you know, pharmaceutical bodies over the years, and I think there's a real interest. But I obviously, more, more, more can be done. And of course, you know, the the best drugs in the world are useless unless you know people are going to the doctor to get them or going into the pharmacy to ask for them. Um, so I think what pharmaceutical organisations can do, or perhaps more than they are, is to help us certainly with education to educate men to understand more about their health um where they can get help and so on um but also to develop our understanding of how we can get men to make better use of, of health services perhaps particularly general practice and pharmacy uh, how can we get more, more men in through the door and that's partly around education it's partly about destigmatizing the services about making them uh, more accessible to men, but that's also there are also practical things need to be done. How can we actually change appointment systems so men find them easier to use? You know, how do we actually uh, design the waiting rooms so they look like they're more male-friendly spaces and not and, you know the posters on the wall are about men's health, as well as women's health and children's health, that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of innovative work uh, that could be done in that area. Uh, and I think pharmaceuticals could, could play a, a, a leading role in that. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Mark. Thank you for inviting me to talk to you. Thank you very much. It was great
0: to hear from Peter there in terms of the great work that's already been done in relation to men's health, as well as the work that still needs to be done in the space. Now, moving on, our next guest is Global Head for Prostate Cancer Disease Area Stronghold at Janssen Oncology and friend of the Gold podcast, Chumi Karana. Chumi is a female champion of men's health and has previously featured on the podcast to discuss some specifics around prostate cancer. This previous episode will be linked in the show notes, so do be sure to check that out. This time around, Chumi spoke with Gold's assistant editor, Isabel O'Brien, about men's health more broadly, exploring some of the most pressing issues currently affecting the space and farmers' role in encouraging men to engage with their health. Over to you, Isabel.
2: So, Chumi, welcome back to the podcast. We've had you on once before. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing great, and it's great to be back again. Thanks for having me again.
2: No, it's wonderful to have you back. So the reason we've got you back, the reason we've asked you to return is because it's Men's Health Week this week. And it's a very important one as the pandemic has had a huge impact in this space. So, for example, prostate cancer diagnosis was down 29 percent between 2019 and 2020. So it's great to have you back to raise some awareness of some really important men's health issues. But before we get into all of that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your pathway into this space. So Jimmy, what was your journey into becoming a men's health advocate and leader?
3: Yes. So the way that that really happened is, is that growing up, healthcare was always front and center in my home. My father is a physician and he actually practiced traditional medicine as well as acupuncture and homeopathy. So once I got my MBA in international business at Temple University here in Philadelphia, I was really hoping to marry my passion for healthcare and global business. And I knew that the healthcare industry was a booming area and and an area I really wanted to be part of. I've worked in many disease areas, but I really enjoy working with highly qualified teams that are driven to find a cure for cancer. I always like to say, Uh, working in oncology is not what I do, it's who I am. Our focus is on developing and marketing treatments that can be accessed by all of those who have unmet needs as it relates to cancer. When you work together on such an inspiring mission, you really do become blind to whether this is a male or female or gender-neutral disease.
2: Oh, yeah, that is a really fantastic mission. And yeah, I completely see what you're saying. It's not about gender all the time. It's really about the the disease and finding a cure to that disease.
3: Right.
2: I suppose, as you say that, you are a woman in this space, Mm -hmm. though. So do you think that that offers you any particular perspective that is of benefit?
3: Yes, I actually think it does. Traditionally, women are seen as caregivers. Men are seen as maybe not as involved, stoic, and maybe even care resistant, right? I strive to work through the lens of both in a space where the paradigm has really shifted. Men need the entire village to support their health journey. The grief and care resulting from a cancer diagnosis really does affect both men and the women in their lives. So women do have a major role to play in encouraging the conversation and taking the stigma and shame away from men expressing weakness due to an illness. This is something that I think is super important. So I do believe that I bring a lens and a viewpoint of a woman to the work that we do. What's actually very interesting is that both of my counterparts in research and development are also women, so we make a very dynamic trio working on prostate cancer.
2: And a very formidable trio, I imagine, as well. So I touched on it a little bit in the beginning. Um, COVID has had a huge impact in this space, touched on the prostate cancer diagnosis, but how else has the men's health landscape evolved in the pre-nearing to post-COVID era?
3: Well, I certainly hope we're in the post-COVID era. I I hope that's true. Um, But the COVID-19 pandemic has really shined a cool light on the state of men's health globally. In several countries, including the Netherlands, the Dominican Republic, and Spain, The number of men who have died of COVID outnumber women two to one. As you know, International Men's Health Week is this week from June 15th to the 21st. It really is an opportune time for us to focus attention on this issue. We need a new and systematic approach to improve the health of men generally. The higher prevalence of pre-existing comorbidities in men than in women such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and hypertension, is also likely to be a factor. So as we near the end of the pandemic, men are becoming more proactive about preventative care and self-advocacy, and we need to keep that going.
2: So it's been actually one of the small positives to come out of the pandemic then, that men are taking their health a little bit more seriously.
3: Yes, exactly.
2: So the theme of this year's Men's Health Week is Man MOT. But what does or what can pharma do to engage with these yearly themes? Because I think with these awareness weeks, there's so much potential for impact, but it's got to be a very considered response. It can't just be a post on LinkedIn. So how can companies make a tangible impact?
3: Yes, I completely agree with you. As um, the pharma industry, we play an important role and have an important voice in this dialogue. And I believe highlighting the importance of how men's health is different than women's health and deserves its own journey um, is is what we can do, right? Any development in men's health policy and advocacy must have a framework that embraces a commitment to gender equality and does not see supporting men's health and women's health as a binary choice. Um, Really an equity-based approach is needed to ensure that men especially in disadvantaged and at risk groups with worse health outcomes, such as men of color, um, gay men, bisexual men, and transgender men, or men that are homeless or in prison benefit equally. So we do play a critical role in advancing these policies to ensure alignment with existing public health priorities and access to care. So a lot to do from a farmer perspective.
2: Could you possibly share an example of perhaps a campaign that you've been involved in in men's health that had a sort of particular impact?
3: Yeah, so Janssen specifically is taking a multifactorial approach. We are educating men directly through awareness campaigns about the importance of getting tested as well as understanding their disease. What are the personalized considerations and treatment options? So they are really empowered to share in the decision-making about the best course of action for them. What we're also doing is we're partnering with key stakeholders, including physicians, patient advocacy groups, and other trusted community pillars that can be particularly important in the underserved communities of color that see a disproportionate share of prostate cancer cases. Lastly, we're integrating the voice of the patient and caregivers across our life cycle to create clinical trials, generate data, and innovate on solutions to address the unmet needs that men experience across their prostate cancer journey.
2: And Chimmy, just to sum up and conclude, I'd love you to share what you see as the most pressing issues in men's health today.
3: Yes, just to build on what I was talking about in terms of amplifying men's voices, but it it also goes to amplifying advocacy and preventative care. Preventative care is actually really critical. According to the American Cancer Society, other than skin cancer, prostate cancer is actually the most common cancer in American men. And there are some sobering statistics. In in 2022 alone, approximately 270,000 men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer There'll be about 35,000 deaths from prostate cancer and approximately one in eight will be diagnosed with prostate cancer during their lifetime. Those are really sobering statistics. Prostate cancer is actually more likely to develop in older men and in black men. About six cases in 10 are diagnosed in men who are 65 or older and it is rare in men under 40. The average age of men at diagnosis is about 66. So you can see there's a burning platform here. We really need to continue to prevent and eventually cure prostate cancer. So very pressing issue as it relates to men's health.
2: Completely, so important from an industry perspective, but also from a personal perspective. We've all got to check in on the men in our lives. Men need to be more aware of this and hopefully together we can bring down those rates and improve outcomes in prostate cancer in particular. Chimi, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Some great takeaways there for pharma professionals and the industry as a whole. And with that brilliant discussion, we've sadly made it to the end of today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening and have learned something from our two experts. Speaking of whom, a massive thank you to Peter and Shumi for imparting their wisdom. If you haven't done already, and of course eligible, do book yourself in for a man MOT. It's important for us all to take care of our own health as much as it's supporting the health of patients. Now, on that note, I'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Gold Podcast. Take care and goodbye for now.